number 10. It says these words, Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. When the Egyptians see you, they, they will say, This is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. So say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, that my life may be spared for your sake. Now when Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw the woman was very beautiful. When the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. The woman was taken to Pharaoh's house, and for her sake he dealt well with Abram. They had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. The Lord afflicted Pharaoh in his house. Great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your sister? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him. They sent him away with his wife and all that he had. And this is the word. Lord, this morning we're continuing our journey through the book of Genesis, and today we're looking at this second narrative here in the life of Abram. Last week we mentioned the idea that Abram was a relative, obscure, unknown person, man who was dwelling in a country, in a land that was full of idolatry. God took him out of it gave him a promise that was impossible for Abram to fulfill. God promised him that he would have a son, in fact, not just a son, but many descendants, descendants as numerous as the stars in the heaven, and that he would possess a country. There his descendants would dwell in that land forever and ever. Like I said, this was impossible for Abram to fulfill. He was childless. He was a nomad. He was a wanderer. He left his place, or the Chaldeans, with his father, went to Haran. He left Haran without his father, went into Canaan, where the Canaanites dwelt in the land. Again, he had no children. Now, you know, often when we think of Abram or Abraham, we... Think of a man of great faith and great magnitude, great stature. After all, he is the father, as I said last week, of Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. We think of him as a, as a mighty person. He's listed in the hall of faith, if you would, in Hebrews 11. But we realize here as we are going to be journeying through his life. And as we see even today that Abram is not a lot different than you and I and every other person that has ever walked the face of the earth. 
God had given Abram a promise. God had revealed himself to Abram. And yet Abram finds himself in a very difficult trying situation. The question becomes, how is Abram going to handle this trial? How is he going to handle this difficulty? How is he going to handle this situation that he finds himself in? As we see, Abram fails this test. He fails the difficult situation. He fails the trial that he is in. And this story, this narrative reminds us today that we have choices, we have decisions to make when it comes to God and, and the trials that we face in life and the question that all of us must answer is this, will we trust in the promises of God? Will we depend on God when things do not seem to go our way, when trials seem to come against us? Will we, as so many do, find ourselves running away from God? Running from God should never, ever be an option for the child of God. I realize as we were preparing this morning, we just sang a song called Run to the Father, and that is true. Running from God should never, never be an option, no matter the difficulties we find ourselves in. And yet I ask you this morning, are you running to God? Or are you running from Him? And so as we look at this narrative today, we're going to notice, first of all, that Abram is, is going to head to Egypt. Abram heads to Egypt, we are told, in verse Number 10. Go back to verse 1 of this chapter. And you read again, as we mentioned last week, where God speaks to Abram. Genesis 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, go from your kindred, go from your father's house to the land that I will show you. Abram, I've got a promised land for you. I've got a possession for you. Leave your father's house and go. Verse 5, Abram took Sarai, his wife, took Lot, his brother's son. He took all the possessions they had gathered, all the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. Then they came to the land of Canaan. Verse 7, the Lord appeared to Abram, and he said to your offspring, I will give this land. So there he built an altar to the Lord that appeared to him. And then we read in verse 9, So Abram journeyed on, going still, still going toward the Negev. Now the Negev is the area lying between Judah and Egypt. It is the wilderness. It is the desert place. It is literally the dry land. It represents the southern border of Canaan, and therefore it is in close proximity with Egypt. But God had promised this land. He told him everywhere that he treads, God will give him the land. So Abram is, is treading on the soil that will be his inheritance. But again, look at what verse number 10 tells us. It says, now there was a famine. A famine in the land. Now. There was a famine. The word now in the Bible 
especially in the Old Testament, but even in the New Testament, is an important word to pay attention to. In Hebrew, it's a conjunction. And it tells us here that there is something that needs to be paid attention to. There's something, there's a new part of the narrative that is taking place. It serves, if you would, as a marker, as a way for you to look and observe and notice what is going on, what is about to take place. So what is taking place? Well, a famine. Famine in the land, not an unusual occurrence if you... Think about it for just a moment. You read several times throughout Scripture where famines take place in the land of Canaan. The story of Joseph has a famine. That's why his brothers come down to Egypt. The story of Ruth has a famine. That's why they leave Bethlehem. Go into Moab several times. You read about the famine that takes place in this part of the world where you have to think and realize rain is already a scarcity. Kind of interested what they're going to say here about our winter. We've not had a lot of snow. I'm not sure if we've had 20 inches or whatever we've had. But we sure had enough precipitation, haven't we, in the form of rain. We've had our share. It seems like it's rained quite a bit this winter, so I guess we can be thankful to God that it hasn't been any colder. So it's kind of interesting because as much as we hate the snow, as much as we hate the weather, we realize it's important to the summertime. Believe it or not, the 20 or 30 inches of snow plays a part in whether or not you have fruits and vegetables over the next year. More importantly, whether or not the beautiful dairy farm of Hershey, Pennsylvania can grow all of its beautiful lush so all the chocolate can be made, which is really important in life, right? <laughs> Here we are, Abram is in a land, a part of the world where you, where you can forget about snow. They just need rain, and, and when there is no rain, bad things happen, famine occurs. So what is Abram's response to the famine? What is his response? More importantly, what is Abram's response to the promises of God when things become difficult or tough? What is his response when he, when he faces this obstacle and he's not real sure how his livestock is going to survive and how his family is going to survive? We're told again in the second half of verse 10, Abram, Went down to Egypt to sojourn there. The key word is this word sojourn or settle. Maybe your translation says this, this word denotes just a more than just a quick little drive-by visit. It is striking that Abram is said to have gone to settle or sojourn in Egypt, to be an immigrant there, to, to live as an immigrant suggests the intention of long-term settlement. It's totally different to Abram's wandering lifestyle. In other words, when Abram went down into Egypt, it was not a quick overnight trip. Give you a brief insight on how we travel when we do as a family. We're staying overnight in a hotel after a long day of being in a car. We usually try to pack everyone's clothes into one little carry-on suitcase. One small suitcase, you know, so, so that way we don't have to 
take in everything to stay in a hotel for 12 hours, 15 hours. We get there and we throw it on the luggage rack and as everyone grabs their pajamas for the night, throw their dirty clothes on the floor, they grab their clothes for the next day, the pajamas are thrown on the floor, we gather it all up, we throw it in a suitcase. Then we arrive at the place where we're staying if it's a long journey and there we're staying for a week or so at a time and it's often the case that we'll unload the suitcase, utilize the drawers, the closets, or plan on staying longer. But in case you're wondering, I think our suitcases are currently stuck in the back of Cameron's closet because when we wash clothes, as we constantly do, we don't put them in suitcases put them back where they go. Why? Because we're stuck in our home. Judging by the mortgage payment, the fact that we write a big check and the principal never goes down, it seems like we might be stuck there a long time. But you think about it, that's what we do. Abram is intending to go to Egypt for a long period of time. This is not an overnight visit for him. And you can understand why he would go to Egypt. Egypt is a Nile River. The floods of the Nile made it a very fertile land with food and so on. And yet God promised Abram not the land of Egypt, but the land of Canaan. God told him way back in verse 1, you are to go into the land of Canaan. This is the land I will give you. Egypt, as you read it in Scripture, is never, never the place for the children of God. Egypt always represents a place of slavery, a place of bondage. We know what happens just hundreds of years later as Abram's descendants go into Egypt and there are held captive for 400 years until the time of Moses. God calls his people to come out of the land of Egypt. And yet, yet Abram is failing to trust God. He's failing to trust God in a difficult time. He's failing to stay true to God. He's thinking, maybe I need to go somewhere else, do something different. See, it would be easy to stand up here and tell you that if you just serve God, your life will be better. Everything will be great. Everything will be wonderful. Everything will go good. But we know that's not the way it happens. We've been here long enough to see so many in the church, including most of us that are here this morning, go through difficult times. Whether it's a loss of a job, whether it's failing health, whether it's loss of a loved one, The fact of the matter is this is the way of life. This is the way of the world. It is a place of struggle and hardship and difficulty. And God sends trials to each and every one of us. And he does it so that you can answer this question. What will I do? What will I do when the difficult times come? Abram runs. He fails to trust in the promises of God. And look, 
Look at what happens next. Second point, Abram devises a plan for survival. Devises a plan for survival in Egypt. When you're on the run, you avoid knowing what is right and good. You always have to scheme. You always have to find contingencies. You always have to find plans. Again, when we go back to basketball, if we're down a few points, You'll notice we're always trying to think, what can we do? Maybe we need to foul the opponent. Maybe they'll miss free throws. Maybe we need to try a, a trap defense to get them to turn the ball over. we got to do something. we got to figure out a way. To, and we don't do that when we're winning the game. We're sitting there staring at the clock thinking, hurry up and get to zero. We're losing the game by a bunch. We don't. We sit there and look at the clock and say, get to zero. Oh, if there's something we can do, we gotta, we got to get a scheme here. A- a- Abram is thinking in his mind, I'm going to Abram I, or Egypt. I probably shouldn't be going here. Let me think of a way I can survive. What does he do? Verse 11 tells us when he was about to enter Egypt. He said to Sarai, his wife, I know you're a woman beautiful in appearance. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, and they will kill me. But you they will let live. Say you are my sister, that I may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. Abram looks at Sarai and realizes she is an exceptionally attractive lady. This time Sarai is in her mid-60s. You realize, of course, that they lived a lot longer, so probably the aging process took took a little bit longer than what we would look like today. But here he is. He's looking at Sarai. And he, Sarai, I know you're beautiful. I know these Egyptians are going to see your beauty. They don't have any fear of God. They don't care about God. They're going to they're look at you and they're going to say, look, there's a man and his wife. If we kill him, we can take his wife. And by the way, this is not a total lie. Abram tries this again. We'll see that in a couple weeks here in chapter 20. But We realize through chapter 20, verse 12, Abram tells Abimelech this time, he says, Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. So technically, Abram's not lying. Again, we realize the patriarchs, the forefathers, they really didn't have a choice but to marry siblings and half-siblings and so on and so forth. This stating this fact is not to highlight the familiarity of, that they had between each other. We don't walk around and identify ourselves in such a manner. We realize that we usually identify ourselves with our closest relationship unless we are trying to use it to our advantage. We don't walk around and say, yeah, this is Mary, the daughter of Larry and Mary Carr, because most people will say, Who? I walk around and say, this is my wife. And she looks at me and says, I never know that guy. Get him away from me. Now, if she was famous, if her parents are famous or wealthy, yeah, I would do that all day long. Give us favor. Give us privilege here. Remind you again, Abram. Abram is told he will have a land. He will have a seed as numerous 
as the stars in the sky. You and Sarai will have children and you will have an inheritance. And yet at the first sign of trouble, he's packing up, he's heading for Egypt. At the second sign of trouble, he is selling Sarai up the river so quickly. Just tell her you're my sister. They'll take you and I'll be able to live. Well, thanks for the loyalty and devotion, Abram. Boy, you could rethink those wedding vows and you said for better or for worse, huh? Again, I ask you this question. I ask you this question. You're here, but, but you're thinking maybe this will be the last time. Maybe, maybe there's something better out there for you. Maybe, maybe serving God isn't really all that it's cracked up to be. I mean, I gave it a good shot. Do, do you really, really believe in the depths of your heart that Egypt is better, that not trusting God is going to work out in the end, that going back to that lifestyle? You know, I, I didn't put it in here, but I'm always amazed when people are complaining at, at Moses when they're being led out and they're in the wilderness again where where they look at Moses and say, we want to go back to, to Egypt because there we had leeks and onions to eat. And I always read that and think, what in the world? I'll eat manna over leeks and onions constantly. But we think that in our mind. We think maybe I don't need to put my faith in God. Maybe I shouldn't trust Him. Abram heads to Egypt. He devises his plan. And notice, third point this morning is that Abram's plan works. It works. Abram's plan works out. It happens. The old A-team show where some point in every episode, Hannibal chomping on his cigar and he's smiling and smirking and says, I just love it when a plan comes together. Like here you are, you just made a gun out of duct tape and chewing gum. You tell me this is what you had in mind the whole time. Of course it isn't, but that was the point of the show, that and the flip over cars and let them blow up. Abram's plan comes together, although I'm not real sure that he had exactly the way it came together in mind. Verse 14, Abram entered Egypt. Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. So far, so good. The next door neighbors ring the doorbell and show up and Sarai answers the door and they're like, hey, just want to welcome you to his neighborhood. Where's your husband? That's my, that's my brother there. I'm his sister. Working out good. They're walking around town. Hey, how's your sister doing? But, but notice what happens in verse 15. The, the princes of Pharaoh saw her. Princes of Pharaoh, somehow, he gets noticed by some of the uppity-ups in the Egyptian government. They saw her, and they praised her to Pharaoh. Pharaoh does what every king, power, total power does. News of this beautiful lady reached the ears of Pharaoh, and being a powerful king, it does whatever he wants. He decides to act. Oh, there's a beautiful woman. There's no reason to... Peasant should have her. I'll take her for myself. Sarai is brought into his house to become a part of his harem. Again, I don't know if this is what Abram had in mind when he concocted this plan. Times I've traveled overseas, we've always 
kind of put down an itinerary of what we're going to do and where we're going to be and and the government kind of sort of wants you to know, but, but I never assumed that, that making a journey over to a foreign country would involve the highest levels of their government. We've driven by some of the governmental offices in Nairobi and Cairo, Egypt, and, and you just never assumed that they would pull me in and say, here you are, I, I want to know what you're doing. Normally we try to just drive on by because there's big people out there with machine guns. Really don't want to get involved. We, we just, you never assume that. And I don't know if Abram saw this, this plan coming into fruition that Pharaoh would hear of his wife. Pharaoh would think that it's his sister. Pharaoh would think, hey, she's available. I'm only Pharaoh. I've only got a hundred wives. What's another one? Bring her in. Pharaoh hears of this beautiful woman, and he does what a self-important leader does. He takes her. I think Abram was just worried about the next-door neighbors, the people around him, wasn't worried about Pharaoh. So we see his journey. We see his ill-advised plan. His plan that goes off the rail, and yet we also see my last point, which is this. That God grants mercy. God grants mercy to Abram. Despite the fact that Abram has seemingly messed everything up and failed to trust God. Look at what happens. God displays His mercy. Verse 17 tells us the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues. Great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. I find it interesting that Moses writing this account under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit hundreds of years later, he never calls Sarai Abram's sister. Except for when he's quoting somebody else. She is always Abram's wife. God, no doubt, is penetrating the heart of Moses and letting him know that despite what Moses says, God has called Abram and God has called Sarai to be the father and the mother of this nation. And she is Abram's wife and never will be his sister. But what happens here? God afflicts Pharaoh and his house with great plagues. Great plagues because of Abram's wife. Of course, we see in these words a foreshadowing of the great plagues. It hits another Pharaoh hundreds of years later as Moses leads his people out of Egypt for the final time. But, but look at what happens in verses 18 and 19. So Pharaoh called Abram and he said, What is it you have done to me? What is it you have done? Why did you not tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So I took her for my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her. Get out of here. Go. Leave. Get away from me. Pharaoh brings Abram up to him and says, What are you doing? What are you doing? How have you done this to me? Get your wife and get out of town. Verse 20, Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away. 
his wife and all that he had. Now this idea of being sent away may have the mild sense of setting someone on their journey. Say goodbye to someone after service here. You're done talking about what you're doing last week and this week and all this stuff. And Say, hey, we'll see you next Sunday. Have a, have a great week. And you send them away. It could be something that mild, but it also carries overtones of expulsion. The same words that were used by God when he kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden. He drove them out. He expelled them. He got rid of them. And it is the verb most often used to describe Israel's exodus from Egypt. In other words, Pharaoh wanted him on the next train out of town. Get out of here. And we're not told how Pharaoh realized what was going on. We don't realize what happened here. Did Pharaoh have a relationship with Sarai? Was it just the fact that she entered the palace and instantly leprosy showed up or frogs showed up or the Nile turned into blood or whatever the case? Did he actually have a physical relationship with her? We are not told, but we are told that in spite of Abram's foolish plans, Sarai never became a permanent part of Pharaoh's family. God was keeping those two together so that his promise of an heir, of a land, would still take place. And of course, as we think about this, I did not discuss verse 16. Look at what happens there. It tells us, and for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. He had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, camels. God gave to Abram the riches of Egypt. The riches of Pharaoh to help build Abram's wealth in order to help build the nation that would be coming from him. What else do you call that? The mercy of God being demonstrated to a man who did not deserve it. Isn't it amazing, even in our weakness, even in our failures, that sometimes God gives us His great mercy. Unless you think, wow, maybe, maybe I should go out and be deceitful and see if I can get wealthy. Realize that in Christ, the riches of Christ, the blessings of Christ, the, 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 the riches that God gives us. In Christ Jesus, our forgiveness, our eternal inheritance. You really think you're going to be satisfied with a camel or a donkey or sheep or a cow? iPhone or Lamborghini or seaside house? God has given us so much in Christ. And it's all because of His great mercy that He has lavished upon each and every one of us. What I want to say to you this morning is this. It is true that we failed God, that we failed to trust Him. It is true that so many of us have run away. We've wondered, where are you, God? 
We've thought maybe God doesn't care about us. We've thought maybe there's something better out there than being in the arms of Jesus. If that is you today, I want you to know that if you will simply run back to Him and come back to Him, you will find God's mercy is extended to you still and yet again. God has not stopped having mercy upon you simply because you fell in a time of trial and temptation. God does not look at you and say, you have gone too far. You have messed up this time. You have taken it way too far this time. No, God looks at you and says, I know you've messed up. I know you've made mistakes. I know you've failed to trust me, but my mercy is there in your time of weakness, in your time of need. song I love to hear. It's called His Mercy is More. It says this, Praise the Lord, His mercy is more, stronger than darkness, new. New every morning our sins, they are many, but His mercy, His mercy is more. But love could remember no wrongs we have done, omniscient, all-knowing, He counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. So patience would wait as we constantly roam. A father so tender is calling us home. I was going to read those words and just totally forgot. I even got it marked here in my Bible. Before they sang that song, Luke 15. I forgot, but I'm thinking about them now, so I'll read them now. The prodigal has run away. And we are told in Luke 15 that while he was a long ways off, his father saw him coming home. He ran to meet him. Even while the prodigal was so far away, his father was watching. He saw him and his son probably couldn't even see his father. Again, what patience would wait as we constantly roam. The father so tender is calling us home. He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. The last verse, what riches of kindness he's lavished on us. His blood was the payment, his life was the cost. We stood neath a debt we could never afford. Our sins, yes, they are many. His mercy. Mercy is more. So as we finish this morning, two things stick out in my mind. Many of us are failing to trust God. Many of us are thinking we should go away from God or thinking we should try something else. Simply because things don't seem to be going our way. 
the world seems to be falling apart, our life seems to be coming unglued, and we're thinking this morning, maybe there's a different choice. Maybe there's a better way. Maybe there's a different option. Perhaps you would do good to remember the words of Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than yours, so are my ways higher than your ways, my thoughts than your thoughts. We used to sing that old song, By and by when the morning comes and all the saints of God are gathered home. We will tell the story of how we've overcome and we'll understand it better. Why? I don't understand why children go through sickness, leukemia, sometimes lose their life. I don't understand why men or women can be faithful and love their spouse and yet their spouse walks away from them. I don't understand why a person would leave prospect of making a ton of money here in the country living a well life give their lives to go go into missions work struck by a story I heard on Voice of the Martyrs where a teacher from Texas in his 30s decided he'd go to Iran there in Iran as they're running one morning as he's exercising he's arrested and murdered listening to his wife and their program talk about how hard it is. I don't understand why God does these things, but I know. I know that there's no other way. I know that there's no better option. I, I can't. I mean, I can explain it's sin. It's the fallenness of the world. And sometimes I can't explain what happens in your life. But I know there's no other choice. Where do you think you're going to go that's better? I know there's a famine. I know there's a famine, Abram, but you really think that Egypt is better? Second point is this, how great, how great is the mercy of God. Despite our faults and our failures, He loves, He provides. He's made a way from the clutches of Egypt that ensnare us over and over and over again. How great is the mercy of God. I mean, who would have thought Abram was this, Abraham is this great man, right? No, Abram is a man who's struggling and has signs of cowardice. And God provides mercy to him. God provides mercy to him. I read to you Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. Let me read to you 6 and 7. It makes a little bit more sense here. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the right, unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. To our God. For he 
of abundantly pardon. Yes, I fail. Yes, I make mistakes. Yes, I don't trust God. And yet I run to the Father. I fall into grace. I'm done with the hiding. There's no reason to weigh my heart. My heart needs a surgeon. My soul needs a friend. So I run to him again and again. And I imagine the songwriter, if he wasn't thinking about ruining the song, he would say, and again and again. He does say it four times. I think he'd say, and again and again. Six, eight, ten, fifty, a hundred times. Imagine that's how he probably wanted to write it. What I'm telling you this morning is this. This may be you. But don't run off to Egypt. Run back to God. Because when you do, He's going to look at you and say, You are forgiven. You are forgiven. He's going to look at you like a man who sat there and mocked Him and ridiculed Him and said, What are you doing? If you're, if you're the Savior, get off the cross and get us off of our cross. He's going to look at you the way He did that man and say, You will be with me in paradise. The man realized what he was doing. He's going to look at you. He looked at the Apostle Paul who would sit there and take his followers and throw them all into jail and kill them and beat them. Paul, my hand is upon your life. He's looking at you the way he looked at Peter who said, I'll never deny you. And this little teenage girl with pimples and freckles and everything else looks at him. Peter says, I never knew that guy going to look at Peter and say, feed my sheep. Do you love me? God's mercy and forgiveness is extended towards you today. Receive it. Receive it and whatever you do, don't stay in Egypt this morning. Come back to God. Amen. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, I confess and I realize I have shown my lack of faith and trust in you over and over and over again. Gone through trials and difficulties and yet not near as what others even in this church have faced and have thought, where are you, God? messed up, I've sinned, I've failed, fallen short. And yet, God, as easy as it is to unpack my suitcase and set up my home and build there in Egypt, you're calling to me and you're saying, come out, come out. Your mercy is being extended towards me. As you're saying, come back to me. I come back to you. You show your forgiveness. And so, Lord, I pray for the one who has their eyes set on Egypt that's here this morning who's thinking there's a better way for them. 
Lord, I pray that they wouldn't even take that trip. They would stay right where they are, faithful to you in the midst of the trial, in the midst of the storm. Lord, I pray for the one as well that finds himself in Egypt. They find themselves in the pig pen like the prodigal did. Lord, I pray that they would realize the mercy of God is calling to them, reminding them they are forgiven, they are loved, they are redeemed, reminding them to come back to you, to run back to you, to remember the forgiveness of God. Do this, we pray in Jesus' name. As you're sitting there prayerfully, presence of God. Our worship team is going to sing this song. It's familiar. We've sung it here several times. It reminds us no matter who we are, God is telling us today, you are forgiven. Receive this into your heart as we finish our time upon us. The Lord will be gracious to us and give us peace. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. So glad you're here this morning.